everyone. Welcome to BYOB, the Bring Your Own Book podcast. I'm Kelly. And I'm Nikki. Today, we are extremely excited to be talking with USA Today bestselling author Rebecca Yaros about her fantasy debut, Fourth Wing. On sale May 2nd, 2023, this highly anticipated first release from the new adult imprint Red Tower Books invites readers to enter the brutal and elite world of a war college for dragon riders. She has written more than 15 novels with multiple starred Publishers Weekly Reviews and a Kirkus Best Book of the Year. A second-generation army brat, Rebecca loves military heroes and has been blissfully married to hers for more than 20 years. She's also the mother of six children, and she and her family live in Colorado with their stubborn English bulldogs, two feisty chinchillas, and a cat named Artemis who rules them all, clearly. Hi, Rebecca! (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes, I am so excited to have you here. And I just can't imagine all the different feelings you're experiencing right now, because at the time of our recording, Fourth Wing has just hit the shelves. So how are you holding up? Have you gotten any sleep? Are you going into madness here? I slept last night, but um, a lot of people don't know my daughter got married this weekend. Oh, and so I mean, thank you. I mean, our oldest, not our youngest, of course, because there's this big age gap there. But (laughs) You know, the leading up into a wedding like that and then turning around and I think we were home for like a day and I went and signed all the pre-order copies, the personalized ones, and then it released the next day. So I slept last night. I think that's the best way to put it. And it's it's super fun. Um, My youngest son came with us last night to Target to find it on the shelves. Oh. So I think it's more fun to watch them, to watch our kids see it. Mm-hmm. That's been, that's been really fun. Oh my that's gosh. awesome. I love that so much. It is really nice to see all of the Instagram uh, stories kind of tagging you of people seeing it in their bookstores all over the country and everything. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine like how that would feel. It's I'm trying so hard to keep up and say thank you to everyone. Um, And I think last night we had come back from my lacrosse game again, because we have six kids, my life like revolves around what my children are doing. So we'd come back from the lacrosse game last night and I sat on the couch and after two hours, my husband's like, where are you at with a notification? I'm like, 15 hours ago. So I keep trying to like say thank you. And it's it's incredible to see people go out and actually look for it because it's just, it's overwhelming. I think that's the best way to put it. It's just surreal that people are going out and actually looking for it and finding it and seeing it in different places. It's it's surreal. It's a, that's There's no other word for it. <laughs> yeah, we um we I mean Kelly and I got um advanced reader copies, but when it came out, Kelly works at Chapters, which is like the Canadian version of Barnes and Noble. Yeah. And she sends me a picture. She goes, I have the books for us, the the hardcover, <laughs> the beautiful, like Yeah, I said I got the goods. Yeah, you know, I had to make sure I got it right <laughs> They are pretty. Um Elizabeth Turney Stokes and Brie Archer made the cover. And it is the prettiest cover I've ever seen. And everyone's always like, it's a gorgeous cover. And I can't really say thank you because I didn't make it, right? So I'm like, I know. (laughs) But then it sounds all arrogant. But no, they did such a beautiful job in the edges with the dragons. Gorgeous. I keep staring at them. On top of all of this, you're also really passionate about helping children in the foster system through your nonprofit Mm -hmm. One October, which you co-founded with your husband back in 2019. I think that's so amazing. I have a interest in hopefully one day fostering children. So I thought this was really, really cool. Can you tell us Pretty a bit cool. about One October and your experience through the foster system? 
Sure. Uh, we were certified foster parents for four years. We ended up adopting our youngest daughter from foster care when reunification wasn't possible. And um, so our, our organization is to aid the kids as they come into care. So foster parents or their social workers can give us a call and get a bag that has a week of clothing in it or a new backpack or school supplies, because a lot of kids will come into the system without sufficient clothing. And a lot of these kids have to start school like the very next day. And so we try to make sure that everything is serviceable and it would look like your own kids would wear it. And we, we take um, clothing donations and things like that for it. But if they need school supplies or backpacks or things like that, we help out. Um, we also have a lending closet. So if someone brings in an infant, because when we brought in our daughter, we weren't expecting a baby. We were registered like to say we were, I mean, of course we were registered to take whatever child needed a placement, but we, we figured we would get like a toddler and above. So when our daughter came as an infant, we didn't have, we didn't have anything besides a crib. Like I remember my, um, my second son sitting on the floor and holding her in his lap while I made lunches the next morning. Cause my husband was in Afghanistan. It's the whole thing. Um, and we had to run out and buy everything. And so we just wanted to be a location where if, you know, if foster parents are bringing in children, they weren't quite prepared for, we can give them those, those necessary items. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I love that. Thanks. That yeah. must be so handy too. Like, I can't imagine how overwhelming it is taking in a child in any situation, but especially when you don't have the adequate resources at home to like make sure that they have everything that they need on top of the fact that they can't communicate with you because they're just a baby. Right. Yeah. It's it's definitely a rough few days. At least it was for us. I can't speak for every every foster parent. Um, just because, you know, when you take in an infant and, and they're crying at 1 a.m., it's not you they're looking for. Yeah. You know, so you're doing the best you can just to kind of step into those shoes in hopes that you know you can you can reunify that family. Uh but I will say my my boys did a really good job stepping up to kind of help out until we could we could get everything. I think it was like a a week of we'd order this and this and this and this and this and then we were fine. But I know that some some people don't know that foster parents are given a stipend to help kind of clothe those kids and get those things and it comes in arrears. And we're really lucky that we could afford to go get those items with no problem, but a lot of foster parents can't. So we wanted to make sure that we had a lending closet so that they could come immediately and get a high chair and get, you know, a baby bouncer or get whatever it is they, they need in that moment. That's great. And it's so nice that you took something personal in your life and use that to help other people to make things hopefully easier for people to make you know, what could be a very challenging and upsetting situation into something more just easier on everyone and just a much simpler, smoother transition process, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, we hope so. And there's, I mean, there's, there's no removing the trauma from the situation without, without a doubt. Yeah. But we hope that those kids, um, at least if, if, if we're called, they can get a week's, a week's worth of clothes so they can immediately start school and things like that, just to make it as as seamless as possible without, you know, undermining what, what, what really happens there. I think it's, yeah. it's a good way to put it. Yeah. And so one October feels like a real passion project for you, which I love because I think projects that come from a place of passion are usually more successful, and more fulfilling overall, but your mm -hmm. book fourth wing also felt like a passion project while I was reading it because I was just, first of all, we were both totally obsessed with it from like the first chapter. 
But I think you could, you're welcome. (laughs) I think you can tell when someone is so in love with what they're doing. And so what was the journey like in getting fourth wing, this labor of love or passion project from like first idea to where it is now? What was that journey like? Sure. Um, A lot of people don't know that fantasy is my first love. I have like, I don't know, 20 published books or something. You lose count after a while. Honestly, I always admired the authors are like, I've written 32 novels in this. And I'm like, I don't know. There, there are some books out there. Um, but it was my first love. It's where I started. And that book just kind of died on submission, which is like, it's not when you're not rejected, but you're also not picked up by a publisher. Does it make sense? Like it's just kind of left out there to linger. And so, and I, I'd written my first romance book just kind of as like a, an emotional outpouring on my husband was leaving for Afghanistan. See, he's always, he was like always there. Um, and then that romance got picked up and just ran. So when a friend of mine called me and said that my publisher was going to do a fantasy line and kind of what I thought about that and things like that, I said, Oh, okay. And I immediately called my agent and said, let's do it. Let's go. And so I, I gave my, my publisher five different, uh, five different ideas, which is kind of hard because you have to develop like five different worlds and pitches and stories. And then they, they pick through them to see which one's going to be the most high concept, which one the line needs all of that and so she came back to me and she was like dragons I was like dragons really like you're sure that's where we're gonna we're dragons okay all right we're, ro- we're rolling um and I got on the phone with her and we kind of like we tweaked my original idea which was you know of course the the bonded dragons and everything like that with the forced proximity and she's like why don't you lean into you know your family's military background and put it at a war college instead of just a normal army unit and I'm like yeah down with that so we came up with that kind of general high concept area. And then I wrote an eight page synopsis on accident. It was supposed to be like two, but I just kept talking and I wrote the first 10 pages and then I sent it off to my publisher. And then um, my family has a connective tissue disorder. So we were in the hospital getting a titanium bar put in our youngest boy's chest to raise his sternum off his heart. And she called and she's like, why can't you write this book? And I'm like, I, I don't know. She's like, you're going to launch the line. I'm like, you're kidding me. She's like, no, you're going to launch the line. Because I figured it would be like like the sixth book, like the middle book, like just, just a fantasy book that would be fun. And then it just kind of grew and grew and grew, if that makes any sense. And it was just like going back to the fun I had as, as, as a reader of Anne McCaffrey and Mercedes mm-hmm. Lackey and everything I had grown up with and loving fantasy. So it was, I remember I'd get up in the morning. And uh, I'd look at my husband and I would say, I have to go to work. So yes. And I said, but I get to go play with dragons, (laughs) which is, I love romance. Like to me, it's got to have a strong rub romance plot or I'm I'm not invested. That's just me at personalized reader, but knowing I got to come play with dragons was just like, it was the happiest experience. Let's put it that way. I loved every single minute of writing it. Oh my gosh. I think you can tell. Yeah. 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 I know like for us reading it, like Kelly said, like we were obsessed from the first chapter. I started it, um, I think a week before her and I was messaging her, I think every day being like, (laughs) okay, really need to talk to you about this. 
this other thing just happened. I'm on page 88 and something happened. Like, let's let's go. I yeah, really I said, Hold start. Up. I got to catch up, Nikki. And I was like, you know, and so we could finally talk about it with each other because once I caught up, I was like, oh, my God, Nikki. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't put this down. I can't. Yeah, it's uh, crazy. <laughs> we worked really hard on that. And I think because um, because I didn't come from fantasy, I came from romance. There was very much for the first like 50 page an attitude of, hey, prove yourself if you want to do this. Because, of course, they have, you know, an arsenal of, of writers who have written fantasy. And I'm over here like, I want to try. Um, and so I wanted to make sure each chapter was as hooky as possible at the end and making sure that I was leaving the reader to make sure they had to turn that next chapter. And it's the first book I've ever written that had to have that follow through, of course, because like romance, your plot is usually, you know, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And this one you're like, and let's kill some cadets, you know, let's just. Right away. Oh my God. Yes. I know. I can't say anything yet. I'll save it to later, but I definitely have some things to say. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) So excited. (laughs) So I was going to ask about what inspired you to write your first fantasy, but you let us know that you did have a fantasy. Is there any Mm -hmm. ideas from that original fantasy that didn't make it out to the world that you kept around for this book? Or did you kind of just let that fall away? So I call that a desk drawer book. And it's, um, it's like a book you leave in your desk drawer. Cause I have a couple books that I've written that would go out to submission. Cause some books are better for self pub and some books are better for trad. It's just, it's just a depending on like what audience you're trying to reach and the desk drawer books. I'm always like, you open the desk drawer and you're like, it's not your time yet. It's not your time. Pet them and put them back. Um, but I love my first book so, so much that as I was writing this book, I would find myself saying, you can't pull that magic concept from here because that belongs in this book. And oh, one day I'll yeah. go back to writing it. Oh, you can't borrow that from here because that needs to stay there for when when we go back and write that, if that makes like that makes any sense. Yeah. So they're totally different. But um, that first one just stays in its totality over there for when <laughs> when I feel like working on it, I guess, because I wrote it 13 years ago. So I'm a much better, at least I, I hope I'm a better writer now. Cause you know, you grow in your craft, right? Definitely. So now I look at it and I'm like, oh yeah, no, no, <laughs> no, no. I know why you didn't sell. No, gosh, no. What were you, what were, no, gosh. Like <laughs> the ideas were there, but maybe the execution wasn't so strong. <laughs> and there were certain things for, at the time I wrote it that were just, that are trite and overdone now. Right. So even concepts of that are like, oh, no, 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 no. You have to sit in the desk drawer for a little <laughs> bit. But no, I kept that system as intact as possible for that other book and just kept this one separate because I always view my career as not just one book or one series. So I want to make sure I'm looking ahead and I'm keeping my creative well filled and I'm not borrowing or like cannibalizing other projects just to make one and sacrificing something down the line. Mm-hmm. For sure. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And that would be so hard, I feel like, to just leave it there. But sometimes you just have to trust and let go, which I'm working on as a person, but just let go and know that it's there for when, like you said, it's your time now or like, you know, it's just, it's just not ready yet. It's still just percolating in the desk drawer. I love that little magical desk drawer. <laughs> it is. I love it. And sometimes I open it and I'm like, oh, I remember, especially because like, it represents hundreds of, you know, like a hundred thousand words of, of time and energy and effort, but I learned so much for it or from it. And I think sometimes early, like early authors 
get so hung up on what's special about that first book and they won't let it go and they revise it to death, not understanding that that first book may have been what taught them what they needed to write the second, because not everybody gets that first, that first book, they could see that first agent, they could see that first deal that gets this. Some of us, some of us have to work for, for a decade before we can get there. So I think learning to let that go and let that rest and move on with what you've learned is probably the best lesson for a writer. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really important. It's like, it's not, don't throw it all out. You know, it was meant for something. You got it out and good for you that you got it out because a lot of people don't get past the first page, right? So Mm -hmm. I think that's great. And you can go back. There's no saying I won't ever, ever like go back and look at it. But right now my world's very dragony. So (laughs) right now, right now I must, I must play with the dragons. And then one day again, we'll open the desk drawer and we'll see how that book looks. Darn playing with dragons, you know. <laughs> I know. If you can't, I know people can't see, but behind me, my kids were cleaning out their playroom like when I first started drafting this book, and they gave me like one of their play dinosaurs. Oh. <laughs> so I have this like imaginext dinosaur now at the top of my shelves in my office. People are like, Is that a toy di- or a toy dragon? I'm like, Yeah, it's a toy dragon. It's a toy just up there, just chilling. You're like, yeah, what of it? Mind your business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the topic of dragons, so we know now that this was kind of like a bigger pitch to your publisher of like, which option would you like? But Mm -hmm. I I was talking to Nikki before and we were talking about how we feel like it's been at least a decade or so since we had a huge blockbuster, if you will, of a book that features dragons. So I Mm -hmm. find it's really interesting now that dragons are coming up again And I am down for it because I feel like, you know, we love vampires. We have vampires. We love fae. Boy, do we ever. We've got lots of fae books, but we don't have a lot of dragon books and especially for this age range. So what do you think about this? Like, I guess you were a little surprised at first with dragons, but how are you feeling now? I was because um, when I talked to my agent about what, you know, what they were looking for and my publisher, and I'm also really lucky that I've been with the same publisher since 2013. So when my publisher was doing this, I could call Liz Peltier, who is the head of Red Tower and the head of Entangled Publishing. And because we've worked together since 2013, I'm like, hey, I want to write this. Let's go. As opposed to someone who's coming at it brand new. Right. So I can recognize there's a ton of privilege there where I'm like, hey, what do you want? Um, (laughs) And so it's like in five, five of your pitches. And so I wrote them in order of like, what would be, what I thought would be market grabbing or interesting. Cause of course you, when you're at this stage, you have to look at what's commercial and what's not. And they had said something like, you know, or inheritance cycle or this and this. And I was like, dragons, I love dragons. Again, I grew up with Anne McCaffrey, dude. I will dragon riders to burn this to death. Let's go. And so it was like the fourth pitch down. And so that's why when she was like, I love the dragons. I was like, really? Because I threw that one in and is like a and last minute dragons. <laughs> like it was a it was a last minute addition to the pitch list. And it is hard when you're coming up with a pitch list because you have to have five developed plots and five developed worlds in order to go and say I can write this, 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 or this, right? Mm-hmm. So the dragons caught me off guard. As for this age range, I think the market's cyclical. So every 10 years or so, you're gonna have a rise in paranormal, then you're gonna have you know, we're going to shift back to rom-com. We're going to switch back to this. So dragons are on that, on that same kind of cycle. And as for this age range, I started a new adult and my first eight books are new adult. And I love 
that that genre that I guess it's a subgenre, but there was nowhere to shelve it. So when we first oh. came out with it back there, there was nowhere to shelve it in the bookstores. Um, but I think there's such a difference between YA where you're kind of trying to figure out who you are and new adult where you're figuring out what you're going to do with who you are. Yeah. And I think like there's a lot more, you can make a lot more mistakes in new adult, meaning your characters, not us. We, we don't get forgiven that way, <laughs> but your characters can make a lot more mistakes in new adult, similar to YA, but they have the consequences of adult. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I never thought of it like that, but that makes total sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, think of like when you go to college, right? Like you're, uh, but uh, two of my kids are, one of my kids has grown, the other one's in college, other one's leaving this year. And I call them quasi adults <laughs> where they have like all the freedom, but not necessarily all of the repercussions yet. But you do, you make bad, big, bad choices in that age group. Cause you think, you know, everything and your frontal lobe isn't even developed. Um, yeah. But you have real world consequences for them. Yeah, for sure. That is like one thing that's um, interesting. I feel like the new adult genre isn't something that has really been talked about until the last like maybe like five years or so. And maybe I feel like that because before that I was like not totally aware of like the world. I was like 22. So, (laughs) but now with with that exactly with that now like we're seeing a whole new like uptick on books like this and Mm -hmm. like the idea of new adult where it could just technically be placed in the adult genre but it does give you a different vibe a different sense of what the stakes are within the books whether it's fantasy or contemporary or whatever there is a whole different um outlook there there really is and like like seriously my first eight books were new adult and that was back in 2013 when I started and they're in college and it's such a different it's it's a whole different section of your life that doesn't exist at any other time whether you're in the dorms or sororities or on your own just that age range is it's so unique and once you're married and you're having kids and you become the adult it's if you choose to get married and have kids, um, it's a completely different life. And I, I love examining the thought processes between like 18 and 22 and 25, like right in there. It's just so much fun to me. And especially because I think, you know, you do get to find like finding your first loves or maybe your second or whatever, whatever phase you're in there. But I'm glad we've come back to it because I wrote it so early and a whole bunch of my friends did, but it was mostly like an in, more of an indie movement, right? like an indie pub movement. So I'm glad that trad is, is really catching on. And I was always traditionally published. My publisher was way ahead of the game with new adult. Um, and I'm glad everyone's coming back to it. Cause I do think, especially when you're 21 and you're 22 and you're looking for something to read that kind of represents where you are in life. If you don't have new adult, then all you have is, young adult where they're 17 they're always aren't they always 17 yes and then skip right on up to adult where you're 25 yeah they're usually 17 but they think and act like they're 25 and i'm like whoa what happened i am still thinking like i don't know what i'm doing with my life and i'm older than that (laughs) so yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's a really confusing um well, just YA in general is just a very confusing genre to read. I think as a teenager, you're thinking, I'm not like these kids. <laughs> and so you're having that crisis of being like, should I be doing this stuff with my friends, with 
boys, with whatever. And then when you get into the age where you're in college and you're still reading YA and you're like, I can do those things and I'm not doing those <laughs> things. And now is something really wrong with me? <laughs> and I think there's something for everyone. At least I hope there is. Right. So I hope that there's like the right. I hope no matter where you are and what you're reading, you can find a character that kind of represents you and where you are in your life. And of course, because we have six kids, none of my kids are the same, right? None of them. So certain kids are this maturity and this level and participating in these events at this age. And some kids are not, some kids are not doing anything near that at those ages. So I hope that different writers are writing different places. And I hope that other people can find what they're looking for. Let's put it that way. Because I don't think there's a set. I don't think there's a set recipe for, and you are now 16 and you must have your first love and you must debate having sex and you must debate moving on and you must debate, you know, you must insert yourself in a political movement and you must like, you know, there's got to be like a something for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I, and honestly, like reading fourth wing, there are, there is such a, large cast of characters that you get to meet in this first book i really feel like somebody can find something to relate to with almost everybody in the book and moving forward in the series i know that we'll meet more people because i don't know if i need to cut this out but so many people died in the first book i was so sad that (laughs) we have to bring more people in (laughs) And that'll just be more opportunities for people to relate. Um, But like kind of talking about that and moving on to the second book, how many books do you think might be in the series? Do you have kind of like a number or do you have any thoughts on like companions or like prequels for the future? Um, Just crawl in my head. Wait, don't you? Jeez. Um, (laughs) There's some nice sarcasm. Um, So I'm hoping as my publisher, like I'm like the Tom Holland. I always show that like I'm the Tom Holland where I'll just spill stuff. My publisher's like, and I'm like, I don't know. Sorry. They we asked love Tom them. Holland. Um, it's okay. <laughs> I know. I just I have no self-control. Um, right now it's plotted for five books. Oh, wow. That's because awesome. I wrote, I, thank you. I was really like, really? I'm like, that's <laughs> awkward. Uh, so I started writing the second book and because of things that happened in the first book, you can't, um, and where characters are in, in their ages, I can't skip time as much as I do in the first book. Meaning I can't say like, it's been a month we've been working on this. It's kicking my butt and I'm moving on and getting this in here and here. I have to show weekly developments. And as this plot was progressing and you know what happens and how you deal with the events in the first book, I called my editor up one night. Again, lucky that I can just call her. It's like 1130 at night. I'm like, are you awake? She's like, of course I'm awake. It's a different time zone. Um, and I'm like, uh, so take a minute and really think about this and, you know, take it to Macmillan and all that kind of stuff. Cause we're, we're distributed by Macmillan. And I'm like, I think this book really takes place over six months. I don't think it takes place over a year. Like I'm looking at the timeline and what needs to happen. And I really think it's six months. And that would mean the series would be five, five books. Cause I would move it from here to here, to here, to here. Cause I'm not, a, I'm never a fan of series that drag on for dragging on sake. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I want something that's plotted out and I'm telling a unique story. And I'm like, so talk to them. She's like, five it is. And then I'm like, no, no, hold on. Go talk to them and see if they want five it is. We're doing five. Five is great. And I'm like, okay, okay, all right. So, so we're at five. 
Long story short. Ooh, I love that. Thank you. I do love a long, a longish fantasy series. But like you said, there are it does reach a point sometimes where as a reader you kind of feel like, really? Why? Are we not yeah. done? <laughs> right. Or like what have we conquered? So and I'm glad. I'm glad we kind of stuck it to where it's at. I'm not saying as my publisher's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm not saying it wouldn't come back and be like, oh, it needs a, sec- a sixth book. Because there's always the chance that you accidentally, and I do this all the time. Um, you know what Chekhov's gun is? Have you guys ever heard that phrase? We're both like from you- the theater world. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. So when you put the gun on the table, you got you to gotta pull the trigger, right? Plot wise mm-hmm. for anyone who's listening. Um, and I am notorious for just putting like a dozen of Chekhov's guns on the table. And then my editor's like, you can't pull them all. Like you, that's, you can't pull them all in this series because I've never written a series before. I've always written interconnected standalones. So I'm like, oh, you can't? Oh, okay, cool. She's like, no, that should, that goes in book two. And I'm like, oh, oh, word. Okay. All right. Now pull that back. So I'm never saying I, I wouldn't accidentally introduce a subplot that has to be carried through into a larger plot and it would be longer. But for right now it's, it's at five. And yes, I have thought, we've definitely thought about prequels just because as you're based on the world, you would naturally see where those would come from I would think oh yes um, yeah but I do have fun my brain always likes to wander on what project I'm not working on Mm -hmm. right you know my brain's like but look at this shine (laughs) and then my other part of my brain's like but you're on deadline (laughs) so we've we've talked about it we'll put we'll put it that way that's That's so funny awesome (laughs) I was gonna say like that's so funny you brought up Chekhov because I was going to say like Nikki and I come from the theater world background and so pacing is huge it's so Mm -hmm. important and keeping the tension high and the drama and the stakes and Mm -hmm. this book did that for me and then some which it's so important especially in a longer story it's like we don't want it to drag of course you're gonna have moments of slower progress to build something but Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like that with this book. It was like we were constantly going and I was taken on the ride. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to hold on tight because I'm going to lose it. (laughs) Well, I think the what with this book, when there were moments that were a little more calm, which were few and far between (laughs) because there was so much in this book. Yeah. Like you really like you enjoy the character so much that you're very happy to just sit in those moments. And it Mm -hmm. feels kind of like. um. I used to watch a lot of like YouTube videos of like people vlogging and they'd be like, I'm making lunch. And I'm like, I'm so interested in this person making lunch, even though why <laughs> should I care? But that's how I felt about these characters. I was like, I could just follow you everywhere. And I feel like I'd care about it because yeah. I felt so connected to pretty much everybody that you come across that you spend any time with. Mm-hmm. It was you. really, they're, really nice. They're all and people it, to me. If that makes yeah. any sense. They're all like, all people to me and you need those down moments especially in a book like this where people are dying left and right not to like spoil <laughs> you I never want my reader to feel like it's great but I think I need to go visit my cardiologist right so like you you have to give those moments where after you have that rush of adrenaline you bring them back down right mm-hmm. and you bring them back down to what's important to the characters and where their motivations are and further develop plot without action you know what I mean mm-hmm. like lay your easter eggs um, make sure you're developing the relationships between characters, that's so important to me. And then you can take them right back up like the roller coaster, like the click, 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 right? Yeah. But like if the entire book is click, 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 then you're just like, you know, you gotta get to pace yeah. it for for the safety of your audience. That's like my neutrals. Sure. 
So, <laughs> yeah, it was also like talking about the characters. It was really refreshing to read a book with a strong and self-assured protagonist, mm-hmm. female protagonist, mm-hmm. Violet. And in the book, Violet has a rare genetic condition that doesn't mm-hmm. stop her from kicking some serious ass literally and figuratively. Yes. And we're interested to know how did your own experience with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome shape Violet's character development? Because it, I, I wasn't aware of your condition when I started reading the yeah. book. And that was the first thing I thought I was like, she has like EDS. That's, mm-hmm. It was really, really nice to go into the book and kind of see that develop and maybe we'll talk about it later when we talk about spoilery things, but some like nice things that happen around that towards the end of the book. Thank you. Um, right. So I, I have Ehlers-Danlos and so do four of my children. Um, only four of my children are biological and you should only pass it on to like 50%. And I gave it to all of them. Oh. So we're just, you know, wandering zebras in here. Do either of you have it before I? No, no. Oh, um, you I recognized up, it. I grew up with um, one of my friends has it. So, okay. I'm like, because typically most people don't recognize it unless they either have it or know someone. So I'm always like, Oh, did you get it? Okay. Um, when we were going over the pitch with my editor and we were talking about this brutal world, because, um, if you ever read any of my previous books and they're, they're contemporary romance, so they might not be like up your alley. I always end up killing, killing people. And so I'm like, well, what if we kill people? She's like, what if we kill a lot of people? Let's kill, like, make sure it's really deadly. And I'm like, yes. And I was like, and what if the heroine has what I have? And my, my publisher was like, can she survive it if she has what you have? And I'm like, yes, yes, yeah. we're going to, we're going to figure this out. And so she was immediately on board. Um, I grew up reading a ton of fantasy, right? Like I've said, it's my, it's my first love genre. And there were never heroines that have anything like this that I, that I read. They might be out there, but they certainly didn't find their way into my lap. And so it was really important to me to show a heroine who needed accommodations and could find them and still do what everyone else is doing and still be competitive. So it's not that she's succeeding because of these accommodations, but the accommodations she's getting or claiming for herself are what's you know allowing her to remain competitive and knowing that she relies on her wits. And I see so many, um, so many books where it's develop your strength, develop your strength, develop your strength. And really for her, it's relying on her mind. Mm-hmm. and her own confidence about where she belongs, whether it's in the scribes, scribes quadrant, which is what she's been raised for, or the writer's quadrant, which she's been kind of, you know, pushed into for lack of a better, of a better world word. But it was watching my sons. Um, I didn't get diagnosed until I was 39. Oh, I always wow. knew something was wrong. I'd had to have my shoulder reconstructed at 18. Um, my joints would subluxate all the time. We get broken bones, but my kids... They're, they're hockey players and lacrosse players. My four biological ones are boys. And they would, like one of my kids broke his ankle falling up the stairs and they would break their wrists by catching soccer balls and, and dislocate things. And I'm like, what is going on? And so once we, I figured it out because I was reading, um, I Googled, I Googled scoliosis and pectus excavatum in siblings because we had x-rays come back on one kid and the CT come back on the other. And it came up Ehlers-Danlos. And so I read through all the symptoms and I said, holy crap, this is what we have. And I started like measuring their wingspans and looking at like their, their hyperextending elbows and like things that make, made me feel like a hypochondriac. And I called my friend who's cardiologist and was like, I think we have Ehlers-Danlos. And I gave him all the symptoms and he's like, yeah, that's what you have. And my kids sitting them down and being like, look, these are the risks of what you guys still love to do. 
I have kids who love to ski and kids who love to mountain bike and kids who love to play hockey, lacrosse and soccer. And I said, these are the things you shouldn't be doing, but it's your body and I respect your choices. And I watched them pick and choose amongst their activities. So most of our broken bones occurred during soccer. They all dropped soccer. Uh, we're We're prone to concussion. So my second son, who's on like his last concussion before he has to stop playing sports, chose not to mountain bike anymore and not to play or not to ski specifically so he could play hockey. And it was watching them pick and choose how they were going to handle things and then push forward. So mm-hmm. even though they know they're they're more prone to broken bones, they still want to play hockey. It's their first love. They've been playing since they were, you know, two and six. So I watched them and thought, we do get a chance. Like we should be, we can be told this is something you shouldn't do, but it's up to us to decide how, how we want to live and what risks we're willing to take. So it was really my kids. Cause I don't, I don't ski. I don't do anything active. I'm a, I'm a, like, I'm an expert Netflix binger. Love it. I can relate. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say, or what would you want to say to any of your readers who may be going through a similar journey of growth, acceptance, empowerment as Violet's journey in fourth wing? In like a physical sense or a mental sense? Either, either, or yeah. I think in a physical sense. The one thing having chronic illness taught me is that there's no cure. And I wasted so much of my time looking for a cure and so much desperation looking for a cure. Um, Cause I went through a lot, a year where I couldn't drive um, because I have pots and it triggers vestibular migraines. So everything spins and then I'm on the ground. It's more about learning your limitations and your triggers. And once you know your limitations and your triggers, choosing which ones to push and to stop, you know, constantly thinking something's going to make this better. And instead learning to accept your body and love your body as it is and work with your body instead of fighting it for me and other people, I am not a monolith. I'm sure other people have much different experiences. That's been mine mentally. What I love about Violet is she goes from saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to die today. That's her motivation constantly. So I'm not going to die today. Not sure about tomorrow, but not today. And her having that opportunity almost to escape to the scribes quadrant and choosing to stay and kind of choosing where she truly belongs. So other people in, in that regard, just because someone tells you this is what you're meant for doesn't mean it is. And just because someone tells you it's not what you're meant for doesn't mean it isn't either. It's all it's all up to you and your own experience. So, and I, it's not spoiler, I hope not, but you have her mother saying, you're going to be a writer. So Soren Gelzar were writers. And then you have her best friend who's like, get out. You're going to die here. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in between those two people pushing is her own choice. So you have to make your own choice and not listen to everyone else. Yeah. It's hard, but it's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> still learning that. A lot of us are still learning that. Yeah, yeah, it's a forty long. <laughs> yeah, I'm forty two. I'm still learning that. So right, yeah, yeah. So one thing I'm really interested in how writers write, and I was dying to ask you this question. I feel like I watch videos all the time on like what writers' processes are like, and we have so few opportunities to actually have an author sit with us. So I'm wondering if you have a writing process or do you have a routine that you follow and kind of like, yeah, just give us a little insight on what that is. Like per book or per day? 
a little both maybe? Okay. <laughs> so before I start a book, um, it usually for me starts with a concept and characters. So for Fourth Wing, what came to me was this girl being chosen by a dragon and this dragon having an attachment to someone else's dragon who was the worst possible person for her and being put into a forced proximity because that's where my brain goes. So I'm immediately thinking, this is her personality. This is the dragon that chooses her. Why does he choose her? He chooses her for bravery, for cunning, for wit. Um, who is this person that this other dragon is bonded to and why are they so wrong for each other? Because one, you have to have some romantic conflict. Otherwise it's like, you're just going out for dates and ice cream. You know what I mean? Like, like everyone loves the couple that's like, we went on our first date and then it, we were just inseparable. And you're like, oh, good for you. Yeah. You didn't have to work for it. That's, that's, that's nice. That's, hmm. um, no one wants to read that. Or if you do, I, I'm sure there are books out there like that for you, but my minor, minor, not it. People die on your books. Oh my God. I know. I know. I kill people all, all the time. So I start with that concept and then because, you know, this is my, this is my business. I look at where does that book belong? Is that a trad book? Is that an indie book? Do I need store placement for that book to attract my audience or can I find that somewhere else? So there's that. And as soon as like with this book, when I had that pitch solidified and I talked to my editor and really felt like I had a good grasp on the world and what we were going to do, then, <laughs> then I make a playlist. Oh, cause I feel like I can, um, I can almost like taste the flavor of a book. I can feel it. It's it has a mood. If, if, if that makes any, any sense, it doesn't sound completely out there. And so I start pulling music in that matches that mood that I'm going for and that tone that I'm going for, because I'm very music oriented. So for fourth wing, I pulled a lot of Halsey, mm. a lot of Halsey and, and of course some Taylor Swift, because like if you just have to, she just, you know, owns, owns, owns the world, um, and a ton and ton of Halsey and a lot of women, Billie Eilish, Dove Cameron, like a lot of feminine rage songs. Mm. And then you sit down and you say, and I say, okay, what needs to happen? And I take a collection of index cards and I start writing the scenes that come to my brain. Any scene that I see these characters in that I see that they're achieving. So threshing, I see threshing, um, and for those of you who haven't read it, it's when the dragons choose their people. And then I, I see presentation and I see gauntlet and I see squad battle and I see all these things that happen. And then I see the romantic moments. And then I look at my desk and I start moving them in order. Mm. And I start seeing where we are. And I look at my arc because I, I mean, I've done this long enough that I know where, where we are in a hero's journey arc, where we are in a three-act structure is something I learned in this book. Because my editor's like, three-act structure. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And of course, in theater, you guys you guys know. But I've never had to write that way. She's like, yes, the end of the act is where there's no turning back. And I'm like, good, 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 good to know. I just keep killing people. I don't I don't know what we're, what we're, what is that? And she's like, I, your midpoint is right here. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. So I, it's like going into book two, I had to learn those act structures and things like that. But I move them into wherever they go. And then I write this giant arc. I wish you guys could see it. I don't because it's it's the plot arc for book two. But this giant arc on a four foot by six foot whiteboard. And then I have different colored post-it notes that are scenes that happen in each chapter. And if they denote plot movement, character development, or romantic development. So I can see where I'm lacking. Right. So I can look at the arc and immediately be like, there's no pink in there for like two chapters. We got to fix that here. 
we got to move yeah. this here. Where did we meet this character and have that expectation of this character? And then when did we kill that character off and bring that reader back down to like, oh, these are my stakes. So that's how I, I plot everything. And then until I know where everything goes, I can't start it because I feel like I can't leave the Easter eggs. Right. Or do it without the Easter eggs. Yeah. So I'm a weirdo. I admire people who can pants because I'm like the confidence you must have that your brain is going to get to act three and be like, and of course, naturally it goes here. And my brain would be like, what? I don't mm. Yeah. No, I, ha- I have to know. Yeah, no, yeah. I need a plan. I'm, I need to, I mean, I say that, I don't know what I'm doing like a week from now, but I need a plan. I need to know all the possible outcomes <laughs> and why, you know, like. <laughs> right. And, and I don't in my normal life. Um. My husband just retired from 22 years in the military, right? And he now runs our house so that I can write. So outside this office, I'm a hot mess. I don't know what day of the week it is. I don't know what we're having for dinner. I don't know if a kid has a hockey game and he's like, hey, we have to go in 15 minutes. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, totally. I'll be right there. Um, But when it comes to writing, I have full control of that world. So I have to know exactly how we end up in act three and what that twist is and where that's coming in in order to layer it into act one. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I just feel like there's so many different things at play. I don't, I can't even imagine how you would do it without at least some kind of plan because I mean, but again, that's why I'm not a published author. (laughs) I am a reader. You know what I mean? (laughs) But because we have both read and enjoyed this, we want to put you in your book's Lord. world for a second. And I have some silly questions for you, but <laughs> I would love to know. <laughs> okay. All right. At the war college, everybody, there's different squads you can enroll in. If quadrants, were, yeah, the quadrants, yeah. Yes. If you were a student there, what quadrant would you want to join? Would you want to be a rider, a scribe, a healer, or part of the infantry? Okay. All right. So one, I will say I see a lot of comparisons to Divergent. And I'm like, cool, but also it's just majors. Like they go to college and they choose their majors. That's what I keep telling people. I'm like, they just, they just choose their majors. It's not like a, your personality is in you must go or your houses or like, um, you know, it's not like you're a Ravenclaw or, or you're a, um, abnegation or you're whatever, right. It's just, you just choose your majors. I would love to think that I'm a writer. I would love to think I am. But I think the first time you put me on parapet, I'd be like, <laughs> never mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I would probably end up being a scribe. I really would. I'm a history major. Um, that's where my first passion is, is in history and in English. So I would probably end up being a scribe. But I would like to think I would be a writer. Does that make sense? Like, yes, <laughs> that's how I feel, too. Like, I feel like I I could get over. I could do parapet, but it would come to like threshing and I'd look at something the wrong way, and I think I would die. So threshing happens always on October first. Yes, mm-hmm. my birthday, and it would also be my <sighs> death day. I think yeah. because I think I would make it that far, and then a dragon would be there, and I'd be looking at it, and it'd be like, "I'm gonna kill you now because you're looking at me too long." <laughs> a very merry unbirthday to you. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> and funny enough, that's when our daughter came to us in foster care, which is why our nonprofits won October. Aww. If that's the day oh, she that. the day she arrived at our house. Um, I wondered about that. That's so cool. Yeah, that's, we were think, we were trying to think of what to name it, and that was that was it. Um, I think I'd be okay at threshing. Threshing, I feel like 
I feel like I'm, I'm an okay enough person that dragon be like, yeah, okay, we'll go with you. But I think you lose me at gauntlet and you lose me at parapet. Like, yeah, I just, I just don't know the gauntlet. I think I would just look up and be like, eh, you know, yeah. no, no, we'll just, yeah. but, but they don't have any choice. Either they go up, they go up or, or, or they die. So I guess you, you find a whole different type of strength when you're going to die. I mean, hopefully. That's true. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. And yeah. you say in the book that every rider's signet reflects who they are at the core at their core being. Um, yeah. what do you think your signet would be or what would you want it to be? God, and why? <laughs> Let's get a Warner girl. Oh. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know. I think it's so hard. I think one thing it does a really good job of reflecting, at least I hope so. Um, Cause I think I can look outside the book now and be like, eh, yeah, good job. Oh, you should have tweaked that. Um, <laughs> is that even Violet doesn't know who she is at her core mm-hmm. until her signet reveals it. And, you know, even with Zayden, you know, calling her violence and things like that, like understanding who you are is so difficult as opposed to having someone give you this power that shows you this is, this is who you are. So mm-hmm. I have no clue. I feel like <laughs> ask me again at the end and let me, let me think for a second. I'm like looking around my office. Like it's going to give me an answer. <laughs> like I don't, it's not going to give me an answer. Um, but I've always said if I could have a superpower, it would be to, to be somewhere to travel in a heartbeat. Does that oh, make sense? Yes. Travel like, by map. Yes. <laughs> just immediately go. And it's always been, so I could be wherever my children needed me. Oh. So I could be, you know what I mean? If I heard one of them was in trouble, I could immediately be there. If I heard this one was in trouble, I could be there. I could skip from a hockey game here to a hockey game across the state and be wherever it is they need to. So mm-hmm. that power doesn't exist in my world. Maybe, maybe it will now, maybe that'll be fun, but that is, that is what I would, I would want to be able to do. And that would be so useful in this book as well. Like thinking about just the logistics of battle. Yes. (laughs) Wait until the second book when these, because Zayden, of course, graduates. He's a third year. Wait until the next book when like people are everywhere. And you're like, it takes 12 hours to get there. And suddenly you're like, why did I make it so far away? Like, you know, because you're stuck with the world that that you created it would be very useful that way yes rebecca you say just wait for the second book yeah we are i am waiting <laughs> on bated breath yes. <laughs> and so with that listeners watch out right now we have a couple of quick spoilery questions so if you haven't read fourth wing yet please use the timestamps below this episode so that you're not spoiled because nikki and i have some burning questions we need to ask so please do so now Run away, run away. <laughs> okay, now that we're alone, <laughs> can we please discuss? You brought him up, Zayden. Can mm-hmm. we, but first, can we first discuss how amazing Violet was when she told Dane to back off and stop telling her how to live her life? I I literally yelled at the book. I was like, yes, thank you, because it is so infuriating as a woman in general, but I know it's not just a woman thing, but I was so happy when she told him off. And I feel like we have a lot of romantic relationships in young adult or even new adult books where they're super unhealthy or they're toxic and we still eat them up. Don't get me wrong, Mm -hmm. but like we need to talk about Violet and Dane and Violet and Zayden because wow, (laughs) the floor is yours. (laughs) 
there's a huge difference, right? And and it's important to remember that she had a crush on Dane. Mm-hmm. And at least that's what I would I would qualify it as a crush. And she hasn't seen him in a year. Right. And also I'm the massive Dane apologist. And it's, <laughs> you know, I get to say that because I kind of created him. You right? have to be, yeah. <laughs> so I love Dane. And I think that the first book shows you the absolute worst side of Dane. But also in Violet's head, it's been a year since she's seen him. They're childhood best friends. She's always wondered, you know, just the right person, the wrong time. But when she gets there, he hasn't seen her grow in a year. And she hasn't mm-hmm. seen what this place has made him become. Right. So he's gone through extreme changes and she's been growing, but she isn't there yet. And as she comes into her own, he also views her as the girl who isn't there. He views her as the girl he left when he went into the quadrant. So he's not seeing her develop and seeing her grow and and become stronger. And he's so intent on saving her that he's destructive to their relationship in it because he won't just let her grow because his thought process is he's very black and white, very rigid, very, these are the rules. And to him, you're going to die here. You can't be here. You're going to die here. You can't be here. Don't be near him. Something's going on with him. Just, he is so intent on saving her. That's just to the detriment of her own growth. And I Mm -hmm. see him as like the love you think you need, like coming out of YA and then the love you're meant to have that will help you grow when you come to Zayden. It's like, it's, it's like the transition in that age, right? Mm -hmm. Between what you think you wanted and then what you actually need and what you actually will, will push you into growth. That's very true. I find like Dane is, yeah, the like YA version of what a protective partner should be, where you have that controlling aspect where Zayden is what every adult woman would want as a protective (laughs) partner where they're saying like I really care about you and these are the things that I want to do for you to help you and if in the end you decide you don't want those things I can I can be like man enough to step back and not do that for you Mm -hmm. but this is my offering instead Mm -hmm. of saying you're going to take this which is really kind of what Dane does the whole time every time there was a scene with them I was like the ick ew right right whereas dude yeah with zayden i was getting like miss congeniality flashbacks of them sparring on the mat and being like (laughs) thank you thank you because you know there was a moment in the book where zayden was walking fast and he's like come on let's go instead of like okay are you good let's get there like shit's going down okay we gotta go and i'm not going to treat you any differently i will treat you how i will treat everyone and whether I'm right. grumpy or not, I still respect you, but like, let's go, you know? And yeah, I right. love that. <laughs> and it was, I remember thinking like, cause you can't show the, you can't show the book from his perspective because it really is Violet's journey until that last chapter when you finally get Satan's POV. And we did that for like a really specific reason. But um, he's like, to begin with, you don't know. It's like, is he doing these things to be nice? Because basically all he's doing is not killing her. Yeah. Like up until a certain point when, you know, they become, oh, we're spoiling, that's right. So yeah, once, okay. <laughs> you know, we're past thrashing and they're linked to where their lives are linked, not their, not their romantic notions, but their lives are linked up until then, all he does for her is not kill her. Yeah. So, which is a giant favor. Like when you're considering the fact that like he would like to, um, all he does is not, is not kill her. But he's always like, like when, even when it's gauntlet and she's like, I'm too small to cross, you know, 
to get there. Like it's a physical problem. And he's like, figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't like Dane would be like either. Yes, we can get you out now. All right. Bet if she'd asked him like, you know, how do we cross here and here? And they would give an exact path. As Zayden's like, right way is not the only way mm-hmm. you have to figure your own stuff out. So he really encourages her to grow. But it's funny if like, once you know where his emotions develop to go back and look at his actions and how they coincide with development of his emotions and Zayden, I think because he's never, he's never really loved anyone else. There's also moments where like, he has no idea what the hell he's doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Does that makes sense. Like no clue. Like the man <laughs> is just out there stumbling. Like I think Taryn says, or she's like, all he does is keep me alive. And Taryn's like, yeah, but that that's, that's a big thing for him. Like the man's yeah. trying, the man's trying, mm-hmm. but uh, they do, they have that. They're very different characters. And if you'll notice, Dane always puts himself in front of Violet mm-hmm. and Zayden yeah. always moves to her side. Yes. So like he's there and everyone knows he can squash everyone around them, but he's not standing in front of her, which right. is, which is really fun. Like as it's fun like, as I'm writing the second book to see like how things change. And I'm just finishing up the second book. So it's really fun to look back and be like, hmm, yes, that was fun. Yes. Okay. And then there's this, but yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. Like as a reader, getting to the end of the book, thinking of those things before they're connected by their dragons, mm-hmm. all of the things that he was saying to her, basically, like I don't care, you have to figure it out and you have to do it. Mm-hmm. She showed him consistently that she has that power, mm-hmm. and that that would make anybody more attractive if you can watch somebody become their own person and you know that you can rely on them and they can rely on themselves and you don't have to hold their hand for anything, that's so attractive. Mm -hmm. So by the time they are connected and they have to spend all of that more time together and he does have to watch over her more, I'm like, yes. Like everything really just kind of fell into place for me. I was like, this is perfect and she earns his respect yeah will violet and zayden be returning to the war college at all in book two or is it mostly just venturing off into new territory i'm okay with either i yeah. like i love the snippet we got of the kind of like world outside of the college at the right. end of the book but like i don't know we're just we just want to know if you can so yeah, I, I think I can safely say it's a it's a blend um, okay. because the mission that they they have a very specific mission at Basgaith that isn't isn't done. And right. the first chapter of the second book, which I'm hoping isn't a spoiler. Right? Like I look over like my publisher's going to walk into my office and be like, stop. Instead, she's like listening to it. Like, stop it now. Um, the dragon on your shelf is like a nanny cam. Like- I know. <laughs> I know. So I start getting text messages like, Rebecca. And really, it's like on do not disturb. Like, I wouldn't like, oh, my bad. I missed it. Um, no, I'm sure to them on time, like their wild card. They're like, and then Rebecca opens her mouth because I'm just um, very, very opinionated. So it's a blend of the two. I think the biggest question you have to ask, like, naturally, as someone in that position, so if you're Violet, your first question is, do I go back? Right. That is the first question you have to ask. And she has said with him in that final chapter, is like, you know, are, are you with us? Are you going to fight with us? And she says, yes. And in Violet's character, am I going to fight with you? Does that mean, am I willing to betray what I know? Mm-hmm. And am I, or am I not? And how deep does this go? And who knows and who doesn't? And 
because you know you're it's a it's obvious her mom knows. Yeah. Yeah. Does her sister? You know, has her sister right. lied to her? Um, has the people that she admires, like she admires Professor Devera so much. Just does does that professor know? Does Kaori know? Does the Imperian know? Like who knows? And then if we aren't, you know, if we aren't helping those beyond our own borders, which is really what that entire story entails, what are you willing to risk to help those who need it? And are you willing to give up your own safety in order to help other people? And it's so funny because even like talking to my kids and I always say my kids, gosh, people think, oh, you talk about your kids, <laughs> uh, but my kids are, are getting older, right? So like our youngest is nine, our oldest is 25 and all of my boys are teenagers. So talking to them about it, it's like, do you give up your shield in order to be someone else's sword? Oh, right. And some of my kids are like, no. And other ones are like, yes, that's what you do. It's what's right. And other ones are like, oh, dude, you don't want them in the house. You know what I mean? Like, you don't want the yeah. people in the house. So I think that's a decision Violet has has to make. Is she willing to strip away and destroy her own kingdom to help? Right. You know, to help what's outside. So yes, it's it, it, it's it's in both. We'll put it that way. You get snippets of everything, and because Zayden's graduated, you also get to look at the front lines and see, or not the front lines, but the border, because we're not. We're not in the front lines, of course. So <laughs> you get to see what's at the border and what's new and also how the marked ones are treated after they leave the college because right. he's the oldest surviving marked one mm-hmm. yeah. at that point. None of them have left yet. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Ooh. Oh, I have one more question for you because I know yeah. you're a very busy woman. <laughs> well, you know, you guys Which... are helping me procrastinate writing. So honestly, I'm like, go ahead. <laughs> but, like, we need to read the second book. So I don't want to take up too much time. But... I appreciate that. <laughs> but I need to know, because Nikki and I were both so in love with Liam. His death, because we're in spoiler territory, his death, I I kid you not, I screamed, no, at the book. And my dog looked at me like, what, mom, what? You know, I was devastated. And I was also shipping him and Jacinia from the library. I loved Jacinia <laughs> so much. I loved their short-lived yeah. romance. But so I want to know, will we get more of Jacinia as a scribe and her relationship with Violet? Because we know that Violet was supposed to be a scribe, you know, like that's what she was raised to be. But I want more of her. And my hope for her is that she's going to join Violet and bring her own badassery to this situation. And yes. so I need to know, will she be present? <laughs> okay. So one, there's an Easter egg in the book that you have right now that tells you where Justinia ends up. <gasps> okay. You just have to read for it. And I, I can I'm tell doing you a where it this book is. <laughs> like, I can tell you where it is. If you, do you want to know where it is? Yes. Read the very first page. Very, very first page? It's right. I have my arc here. <laughs> so read the page next to the map. Oh. Okay. <clears throat> so. Oh, how could I be so blind? <laughs> so, you know, as everyone now, like, this my publisher's like, Rebecca. I'm like, sorry, it's right there. It's like someone's not going to see it. Um, So no, but people will on rereads or things like that, or if if they reread. And I like to write my books 
Well, thank you. I like <laughs> to re- write my books so that the twist catches people off guard in the first pass that they read it. And the second time they see it coming the whole time. That's how I like to write them is so that everything's layered in there. You just mm-hmm. didn't, you just skipped over it or didn't put it where it needed to be. So Justinia is in the second a lot. She's oh. in a ton of oh, the so second um, because they are friends. They did grow up training for the scribe quadrant together. And she, Violet needs access to things that only Justinia has. And one of the questions that you ha- that Violet asks herself upon returning is who can I trust and who do I choose to trust? But not only who do I choose to trust, but who do I choose to put in danger? Right. Because seeing what she's seen and knowing what she knows and the fact that, you know, Colonel Ados is who put them there. I don't, it's not, I don't think it's spoilery, but <clears throat> he says something like, uh, I'd have to, it's like out of the draft. So it's unedited, but he says something like secrets aren't very good leverage because they die with the people who hold them. Yes. Right. So like the fact that, you know, something isn't really great leverage because he'll just have killed. And then right. whatever you've seen has died with you. Um, and I will say that like, everyone give Dane a break for God's sake. <laughs> give Dane a break. He's 21. Okay. We will give him a break when he does something redeemable in book two. (laughs) I'm saying, I'm just saying he's 21 and you don't know what you're doing at 21 and you trust the wrong people at 21. We'll just say that. And especially like when your dad is who your dad is, there's a lot, like, especially with Dane and his dad, Zayden and his dad, who's dead. We all know that. Mm -hmm. Um, And Violet and her mother, there's a lot of, which parents do you trust and how do you not trust your parent? And how is your parent? Like, I would hope my children would walk through this door and know that everything I tell them is the utmost truth. And I want only the best for them, but not every parent is the same. Yeah. Yeah. And the same goes for Violet's mom for Dane's dad. But, um, and now I just forgot where was the actual question in there and you can leave that in. You don't have to edit it out. Everyone can know I'm scatterbrained. That's okay. We were talking about Jacinia and her yes. involvement. Yeah. So she's, yes, she's in it a ton and I know who she ends up with. So we'll just Not put it. Liam. <laughs> no, that's a bit difficult. I'm really I sorry. Like tears came out of my eyeballs. When I read that, I was like, there is no way she's going to kill Liam. Liam is yeah. too perfect. And then I was like, that's exactly why she's going to kill Liam. When when they were flirting in the library and Violet was like, yeah. oh, he's not going to know how to speak with her. And then he does. And they're just like, <laughs> we're having our own little moment. I was so, my heart grew three sizes. And I was like, <laughs> no. And know. that's, it was like so nice to see um, like deaf representation in the book that was so amazing for me i was like <sighs> i don't yes. know and it was great included. and like just yeah yes and like the fact Try. that she is not just kind of like a side character that was put in just to kind of like fill some kind of quota mm-hmm. and she will be a main okay. part of the next book is even better because i find that's a common case people put in characters for accessibility right. to show like see i care about these people and then with one scene and you never see them again and i'm like that does that feels pandery yeah. but right. it's so nice i knew immediately like their interaction violet's interaction with her i was like 
she has to be more like, I love her already. And we've only been with her for four pages. Yeah. I love her. She's, I love them all in very different ways. Um, And it's always funny because I love to bring in people who you originally really dislike Mm -hmm. and then bring them up to a place that you really love. Like I love Imogen and Imogen, Mm -hmm. like she breaks her arm and she like, she rips her, almost like rips her arm out of socket that first day. And then Imogen ends up being one of my favorite characters because I love complex I love complex characters and complex relationships. And I love that Justinia is someone that, you know, as a book too, she should never, she should never speak to because she knows what's going on. But the questions you have are like, so at what age do the scribes learn what's going on? Because it's obvious that the scribes, who knows what, because they're controlling the information, they're controlling the history, they're controlling what gets put out to the public and what doesn't. So it's like, at what age do they, do they turn to the dark side for lack of a better better term or you know Mm -hmm. not that there's a dark side but I think everyone everyone has their own motivations for doing what they do um and with Jacinia it was an easy choice that that she's she's deaf and she she can't hear because people of course exist around us everywhere with different abilities and she wouldn't make it in the writer's quadrant you have to have all of your senses to survive infantry quadrant would be the same but a scribe, she can thrive. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, where, what abilities do you have and where are your strengths and where can you thrive? Yeah. So right. it was an easy, it was an easy choice to make. Let's put it that way. It's a nice full circle moment too, because I mean, what you said at the beginning of this interview was about how Violet, she can't necessarily use her physical strength to like, be the best of the best or whatever, however you want to put it, but she uses her intellect and wit and wit. I always put wit in there, but yeah, she has wit too. She uses her yeah. intellect to rise above. And so with the scribes, they're silent, maybe not silent, they're quiet, hidden in the showers or showers. Hidden in the Sometimes. shadows. Never know. Right. <laughs> Book two, we don't know. So <laughs> hidden in the shadows. But um I, I don't know the exact quote because again, I have the arc in front of me, so I can't use that. But that's okay. Um, when you talked about, you know, they hold so much power because they're the yeah. ones who are putting the history out there. And it brought mm-hmm. me back to grade 12 world history, propaganda, what we know is what people have laid out before us. We weren't there. So when I saw the scribe right. quadrant, I was like, they're holding Ooh. a lot of power here. And people yeah. don't mm-hmm. think about it because they're not the loud, strong, fighting group, but they mm-hmm. are pulling the strings. So yeah. I can't wait. I think fantasy's always been, has always had political undertones. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Fantasy writers are always like, how do we look at this world they're in and compare it back to ours? And I was making very, I, um, as a history major, I don't like it when history books are edited. Yeah. I don't like it when, when his, things are taken out of history. It makes me exceptionally uncomfortable. And I love uh, like Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States is, is, a, is a history text that is basically like written by the underdog. It's history from the conquered, right? And how everything looks different. So I always like all the facts. And so that was very important to me. And I just remember like going with my editor through like, she's like, okay, what's important to you? What's important that we keep here? What's important that we keep there? So we take some of the guns off the table because you've just been like, um, have all the points. So, and that was one that I was really adamant be put, be kept in the book. And there's a line that he says, um, it only takes one desperate generation to change history. Mm-hmm. So, and it does, it takes one generation to stop 
teaching it, one generation to not learn it. Right. And that's, that's all it takes to, mm-hmm. to change everything we think we know. Um, and the scribes here, I don't know, like, again, it's a question for the second book. Is it what age do they find out? And at what age can you no longer trust your friends? And, and when you do tell your friends, which one of them will choose to be the shield and which ones will choose to be the sword? Everyone has their own reasons for things. Yeah. Oh, I like got chills. I'm so excited. This great awakening is coming. <laughs> thank you so much, Rebecca, Anytime. for joining yes, us. Yes, thank you. It's been Anytime. such a pleasure. You're now an honorary BYOB girl, so you are welcome anytime. Sweet. Just just let me know. It was lovely to procrastinate writing with you guys. You're you're wonderful. Is there any other questions I can ask answer for you? Probably not that you're allowed to answer them. So maybe later. (laughs) Yeah. I think you should circle back. And I am sorry about Liam, but like it had to be done. I know. If you don't keep the stakes real, then there are no stakes. Yeah, that's very true. I said to Nikki, I was like, you know, even though I was heartbroken, I can respect what you did because we have all read books or seen plays, movies where they have kept characters that we know in our hearts they shouldn't have kept because it affects the story. And so even though I love Liam, my heart is broken for Liam and his family. It had to be done. You know, there, there will be more characters like Liam that we will love that I'm sure you will probably kill. It's but war. that's fine because there will I mean, always be more. Yeah, <laughs> it's war, and you do bring in a bigger cast of characters. And I, I do think what I love about Liam. Well, I love a whole lot about Liam, and I, I hated that he had to leave. Um, as he asks her to do one thing for him before he goes, mm-hmm. so it's not the last you see of his family. We'll put it. Right. We'll put it that way. Oh, yes. So it's, you know, and honestly. He wouldn't have had a place in book two. And one of her big things is like, I don't need a bodyguard. Like, even though she says it in book one, by book two, she's like, and no one will ever, you know, step in to protect me like that again. So, mm-hmm. you know, you get residual effects. I'll put it that way. Oh, my goodness. Well, Sorry. all I can say is we need more books like Fourth Wing on our shelves. We need feminist yeah. books that are inclusive and diverse, that feature incredible world building, and that keep yeah. us on the edge of our seats and make us promise our families just one more chapter before we have to go back to the real world. <laughs> I know. So thank you so much for providing us an escape. However gruesome and stressful it may have been at times, we loved every second of it. Thank yeah. you. To stay in the loop on all of Rebecca's latest releases and upcoming novels, you can visit her website, RebeccaYaros.com, or follow her on Instagram and Twitter at RebeccaYaros. For more information about her nonprofit, please visit OneOctober.org. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the BYOB podcast. If you enjoyed this and want to hear more from us, you can follow us on Instagram at BYOBookPodcast or TikTok at BringYourOwnBookPodcast to keep up to date on all things BYOB. Until next time, keep on drinking in great stories. Cheers! Cheers.